Welcome to BioTime, a podcast to help you pass high school biology and understand the science of life. My name is Chris, and I'm your host today. Hey guys, today we are going to be talking about community structure. Uh, It's a very broad term that encompasses much of what an ecological community looks like. Um, And just like how our own populations are constructed with many different types of people with different roles, ecological communities have their own constructs, and this is what we'll be focusing on today. It is important to discuss community structure as it is how we can describe the composition of a species in a certain geographic location and understand the interactions between organisms. We can see how healthy a community is or how unhealthy um, a community is. So we can really be able to look at community structure to understand if a community of organisms is thriving. So let's first start by discussing how we even measure community structure as it is a broad term. And remember, community structure is really a description of a network of organisms. um, And we can measure our quote unquote community structure through looking at two main factors. The first is species richness, and the second is species diversity. Let's first start by talking about species richness. Species richness is a discussion of how many different species you have in an area. So let's look at this through an example to better understand the definition. Let's say that in my house, which I live in, I have a frog. That means that within the geographical area of my house, there are two species. There's me and there's the frog. But let's say that I walk by Petco and I decide that I want a pet iguana. My species richness will now increase as I have three species living in my house now. There's me, there's a frog, and then we got the new iguana I adopted. So that's species richness. And one thing I want to clarify is that it does not matter how many of a singular species I have. um, That does not change species richness. Only the number of different species affects species richness. So essentially what I'm trying to say is that if I were to adopt one iguana versus adopting a hundred iguanas, my species richness would still be the exact same. Oftentimes when we look at species richness, we just say, oh, this area has a greater species richness than the other area. And when we're doing simple high school biology, I believe that that'll just pass the test, but we can actually calculate an actual value for species richness. And the equation is actually quite simple. It's just the number of species divided by the area of whatever given location we are looking at. And it really is a quite a logical equation if you think about it. Something interesting I want to point out is how we can see a geographical trend um, in diversity. If you were to look for an area with the greatest species richness, um, where do you think you would go? Um, the answer would be that like all anywhere around or around our planet, you would probably go to the equator, as here you get lots of solar energy for powering plants. It's wet, it's humid, um, there's a high level of rainfall, um, the climate is relatively steady. It's essentially a perfect place for life. Um, And as you move away from the equator, you begin to see a decrease in species richness. And looking at species richness often tells environmentalists and conservationists how healthy a community is. Alright, but that's enough about species richness. Let's talk about species diversity. Some people often get these two mixed up 
as they think species richness and species diversity are the same thing, but they really are not. Essentially, species diversity is species richness, but with one more factor to be considered. Species diversity considers how many species a geographical area has and how even those species are, which we refer to as species evenness. So I know it doesn't really make sense, like, like how even a species is. Uh, so we're going to spend a little more time talking about that. Uh, species evenness is a measure of how close the relative abundance of all species in a given area are to each other. Yeah, I know this definition is pretty confusing. <laughs> so let me give an example. This is how it works. Let's say that we're on an island and we have two species. Let's call them species A and species B. Species A has a population of 10 and species B has a population of 10 also. This means that they have high species evenness. As you can see, they both have the same exact population. So let's say that now species A has a population of 1 and species B has a population of 10. Now we have low species evenness because there's such a big difference between the size of their populations. So species evenness, just like species diversity, has an actual numerical value we can calculate. And this value is between 0 and 1. 0 is the lowest species evenness, and 1 is the highest species evenness. Understanding the math um, in our case here for species evenness doesn't is not really too important as it's really more if you're going to a very, very high level of biology. But if you want to, you feel free to search up Shannon's Diversity Index by Natural Logarithms, um, and it'll show you how to calculate all this. The equation really um, involves a bunch of proportions, summations, logs. Um, the math really isn't all that bad. So if you're interested, I recommend that you could read the article by Sciencing um, on the internet, uh, as that's where I learned how to calculate species evenness myself. Right, but enough on this rant on species evenness. Just remember that species of evenness and species richness combine together to be considered as one entity, and this entity is species diversity. And we use species diversity um, to help describe a community structure. All right, so now that we know how community structure can be described, it is important to see what the key players are in a community. There are two roles I want to look at, keystone species and foundation species. Let's start by looking at keystone species. A keystone species is one that is critical to an ecosystem and it has to be removed. The ecosystem would change drastically. Uh, keystone species are said to have low functional redundancy. Uh, fun functional redundancy in an ecosystem refers to how many different species um, in a given area have characteristics that allow them to carry out the same function. So when we say that a keystone species has low functional redundancy, it just means that there are very few other organisms out there that can do the same things that this keystone species does. So oftentimes keystone species in an ecosystem are predators, but it really can be anything, it can be a fungi, mammals, um, really anything. So the idea of keystone species was brought up by an American zoology professor uh, named Robert T. Payne. So Payne tested some sea stars in a tidal plain at Tatouche Island in Washington and found that when he removed just one species of sea stars, the ecosystem collapsed. So how he tested this 
was that he compared two shorelines. On one of the shorelines, I find this quite funny, he physically waded into the water himself and started finding starfish and would pick them up and just throw them out into the deeper ocean. So this way, he was able to compare a shoreline with and without a specific species of starfish. And after a year, the ecosystem without the starfish had its biodiversity nearly halved. And since the shoreline now lacked a predatory sea star, the mussels crowded out 15 original species of algae, limpets, anemones, and sponges. And I'm sure the list goes on. And this is a pretty common example of how taking out a predator, which is that is a keystone species, can really, really affect a ecosystem. As we can see that there's a population boom for the prey um, of that predator, and this leads to disastrous changes. And now that we've seen an example of keystone species that is a predator through Robert Payne's experiment, let's take a look at another keystone species that is not a predator. And I think it's important to look at bees. Bees are critical to our ecosystems everywhere. And I think that with all the activism, social activism occurring today regarding bees, um, it truly shows how big of a problem it is. All over the world right now, there are so many bee um, conservationist groups popping up and legislation being passed. I mean, in 2021, Congress passed a really important bill called the Saving America's Pollinators Act of 2021 that required the, develop the Department of Agriculture to monitor the health and population of native bees. Bees are clearly so important, so let's find out why. A bee has these hairs on their legs called scopae. These scopae are able to attract pollen to them due to electrostatic forces. And once the pollen is stuck onto the bee's hairs, the bee then flies off to another flower, bringing the pollen from flower to flower. And this pollination then leads to the yielding of fruits and seeds uh, that other organisms depend on for survival. The work that bees do also indirectly supports the prevention of soil erosion, production of many materials that we as humans need to survive. Um, it's, it's really quite a long list. Their pollination work applies to 70 out of 100 crop species that feed 90% of the world. And bees are also responsible for $30 billion a year in crops. So really, if bees were to disappear, the world would starve, and that really is an understatement. I mean, literally, ecosystems would collapse, plant reproduction would halt, this would lead to the dying off of primary consumers, which leads to the death of secondary consumers, and so on and so forth. So long story short, bees are critical to an ecosystem, making it critical that we protect them at all costs. Alright, so there's one more role in a community structure we're going to look at, uh, which is foundational species. Foundational species, just like keystone species, are very important to an ecosystem, but in a different way. Foundational species are species that maintain the habitat of an ecosystem so that it can support life for other species. So essentially, if there's an organism that is helping to create or maintain a landscape, you have a foundational species on your hands. Let's look at an example to better understand this. And uh, why don't we look at kelp forests in the Channel Islands? There are over 1,000 species of marine plants and mammals that are found um, in these kelp forests. As primary producers, kelp support biodiversity and keep the oceans healthy. An interesting scenario that I want to bring up, just because I think it's fascinating, is that when seals are being hunted by sharks, they like to swim in dense kelp, as sharks tend to avoid going to dense kelp forests. This is a clear example of how kelp forests are a foundational species, as first off, 
they are affecting the oceanic landscape and the organisms within it. All right, so now that we've gone over pretty much everything that is important to know about community structures, let's do a quick recap before closing off the episode. Community structure is largely defined by two factors, species richness and species diversity. Species richness is a discussion of how many different species you have in an area. The more species you have, the more rich you are. The less species you have, the less rich you are. Healthy community structures tend to have a greater species richness. An important trend to know is that as you get closer to the equator, greater species richness tends um, to be found at the equator uh, due to the climate being more stable, humidity, and loss of solar energy. Species diversity, on the other hand, considers two factors. How many um, of a species you have in a geographical area and how even the species are, which we refer to as species evenness. Remember, species evenness um, is a measure of how close the relative abundance of all the species in a given area are to each other. So if you have two different species all with the same population, you have high species evenness. Species evenness, just like species diversity, has an actual numerical value, which we can calculate. So species evenness is always between 0 and 1, with 0 being the lowest species evenness and 1 being the highest. And now on to the final two things we need to recap, keystone species and foundational species. Keystone species um, are critical to an ecosystem, and if it was to be removed, the ecosystem would change drastically. Remember that keystone species have low functional redundancy, which just means that there aren't many other organisms out there that can perform the same job they do. Uh, the two examples of keystone species we looked at were starfish and bees. And now onto our final topic, foundational species. Foundational species are species that maintain the habitat of an ecosystem so that it can support life for other species. So it really affects the physical surroundings of a place. Um, and the example we, lo we looked at were kelp forests that act as homes for countless species, fueling biodiversity and maintaining a healthy ecosystem for all of its inhabitants. That wraps it up for this podcast on community structure. Thanks for listening, everyone.